Love gives freely, without looking at whether the other person deserves it, and it gives without expecting anything back. Question. Are you motivated to do for others as Christ has done for you, or are you giving in order to receive something in return? Join us today as Pat Morada shares this week's sermon. Welcome. How's everyone doing? Good? I am not Rex Keener. He needs rest and relaxation, so you have me. I'm sorry. Hey, you remember the night before Jesus is to go to the cross, which is the ultimate expression of his love for you and me. He dies for the sins of all of us, but the night before, he's gathered in the upper room with his disciples, having dinner with them, the last supper, if you will. And it's the last time he's going to be together with them, and he wants to give them a palpable physical example of what love looks like. And it's when Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. Do you remember that? John chapter 13. Now, I know that sounds a little weird to us because, you know, we don't wash our feet only in this culture that we live in, right? I mean, if we're dirty, we take a bath, we take a shower. But in the first century, where the roads were primarily dirt and the shoes were primarily sandals, washing feet was pretty common. And so you'd find yourself doing it routinely, either yourself, or if you walked into the home of someone with some status and some resources, they would have a servant there ready to wash your feet for you upon you entering the home. And so it was an act of service, a very practical act of service. And Jesus here is doing this out of a heart of love for his disciples, washing their feet. And John says this, right before Jesus is to wash their feet, he says this, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them, into the, he loved them to the end. Now, picture that night. After they're done eating, Jesus stands up, puts a towel around his waist, grabs a basin of water, a couple of wash towels, kneels in front of one of the disciples' feet, takes off his sandal and begins to wash his feet. I imagine it being utterly silent as the disciples are watching with this confused stare, saying to themselves, what is he doing? Why is he doing this? I mean, this is our teacher. This is our rabbi. This is our Lord. I mean, this is the one who turned water into wine. I mean, this is the one who took two fish, five loaves, and made it into enough food to feed thousands. This is the one who commands the winds to stop blowing and the waves to settle. This is the one who gave sight to the blind, who healed the paralytic, who raised Lazarus from the dead, and he's doing this menial task, washing our feet. In fact, remember when he gets to the feet of Peter? Peter's like, you are not washing my feet. I don't think so. And Jesus says to him, listen, Peter, Peter, look, you don't understand. This may not make sense to you now, but it will later. Peter said, you're not washing my feet. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you will have nothing to do with me. To which Peter did what? What did he do? You, just wash my feet, wash my hands, wash my head. Just give me a bath, Jesus. And then finally, when Jesus finishes washing every one of his disciples' feet, including, by the way, Judas Iscariot, the one who is going to betray him, and he knows it. He washes his feet as well. And after he is done, he asks a rhetorical question. Do you understand what I have done for you? And then he answers his own question. I have given you an example of what I want you to do. 
when I'm no longer here. He's not saying, I need you to wash people's feet per se, although it may have meant that for them at times. But what he's saying to them and what he's saying to you and I is I want you to love out of a heart of love for the other person. I want you to serve them. And he said this, he concluded his lesson that night saying this, when you do that, you will be blessed. You know, it blows me away when I think about that passage of Scripture because Jesus, within hours, is going to be tortured on the cross and he knows it. And what's on his mind? Care and concern for his disciples, giving them clarity as to what is expected of them when he's no longer here. And he's saying to them, listen, I'm not going to be with you in the flesh for very much longer And he's saying to them, he's saying to you and I today through this passage, I want you to be my hands. I want you to be my feet. I want you to represent me well in this world. Why? Because Jesus would say, I want people, when they look at you, I want them to get a glimpse of me. I want you to point a lost and hurting world to me. And nothing points people to God more than when they get a glimpse of his love and his kindness and his mercies. Look at this passage. Jesus said this. He said, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We're continuing our series, Growing Up in Christ. And throughout the summer, we're going to be taking, in Galatians 5, starting in verse 22, each of the fruit of the Spirit and elaborate a little bit more on that. And today, we're going to be focusing on love. So, the first question I'd like to tackle is this question right here. What is it? What is biblical love? I don't know if you know this, but the most Googled question, in other words, the question that most people type in a Google search is this question today. What is love or how do you define love? It's on people's minds. And I think in our culture, because we tend to use the the word love to express a positive emotion about just about anything, I think it's lost some of its weight You know what I mean, right? I I love Starbucks. I love pizza. I love my car. I love my children. I love my wife and so forth. But the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 gives a very detailed description with a lot of attributes as to what love is. It's probably one of the most recognizable chapters in the Bible. It's known as the love chapter, often read at wedding ceremonies. And this is what he says. And I want to walk through this. This is starting in verse 4 through verse 7. Now, context. Paul here is speaking and writing specifically to the Christians in Corinth. And this body of Christians, let's just say, were having a lot of relational problems. There was all sorts of tensions and divisions. And the reason for it is they were not loving the way Christ loved. They were not loving in a 1 Corinthians 13 kind of way. And so what Paul does is he says, time out. You're not acting like Christians. You need to love the way Christ loved, and he's reminding them of what that is. And this is what he says. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. 
Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Wow. You notice something interesting there. Paul spends more time talking about what love is not. You notice that? He's like, love is patient. Love is kind. And then he gives eight attributes as to what love is not. Now, why does he do that? I think one of the reasons is because Paul knows how hard it is to love in a Christ-like, selfless way. And he knows oftentimes we can tend to do the opposite of what this love is. And so he's giving us some of the negative of what love is not because it tends to resonate with our hearts a little bit more, you know? It's like, oh yeah, love is not envious. Love is not easily angered. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Love is not self-seeking. Yeah. See, because he knows it's not easy to do this. About three weeks ago, I was traveling from Nevada to Albany. I had a connecting flight in Baltimore. The weather in Baltimore was terrible, so that flight got canceled, which meant I was in Baltimore for a lot of hours. And after several hours had passed, we finally, late into the evening, boarded the plane heading to Albany. I was like, yes, we're getting out of here. And we were waiting for the pilot. The pilot came from another flight, and he boarded the plane. And as he did, I'm saying, we're out of here. Moments later, the flight attendant gets on the intercom and says, we are so sorry for all the delays you have had today, but we're going to have one more delay. You see, there's a plane landing into the Baltimore airport momentarily, and there are passengers on that flight that are heading to Albany. And so we're thinking we're going to wait another 20 minutes or so for those passengers. You know what my first reaction was? Leave them behind. I've got to get home. As if the flight attendant, seriously, I'm not making, as if the flight attendant could read my mind, she said that she'd want us waiting for you if you were on the other plane. <laughs> it's not easy to love in a First Corinthians 13 kind of way. But I don't know about you. I mean, I do have some people in my life, thankfully, that are easier to love than others. Do you know what I'm talking about? I mean, we have the same backgrounds, the same likes, the same dislikes, same personality, same preferences. And frankly, they're real nice to me. So it's really easy to be nice to them and to be patient and kind to them. It's almost like I'm loving me. But you know, God is calling us not only to love the people we get along with, that we have the same backgrounds and similarities with that are easy to love. He's not calling us to love only them in a 1 Corinthians 13 kind of way. No. He's calling us to love even the people that are a little different than us, you know? People maybe that get a little under our skin, maybe people that bother us a little bit. And maybe you remember this interaction between Jesus and one of the religious leaders, a Pharisee. It's in Luke 10. And after Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, he's asked the question, who is my neighbor? Do you remember this? Who's my neighbor? And in response, Jesus gives the very well-known parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And very quickly, Jesus says this. There's a man walking down the street, a Jewish man. And he's jumped and robbed and left for dead on the side of the road. Shortly afterwards, a priest comes down that same road. 
And as he is approaching this lifeless body, Jesus said he just walked to the other side of the road, walked on by him. Shortly after that, a Levite is walking down that same street. A Levite is generally one who was an assistant to the priest. And he was walking down that same street. And as he approached the body, did exactly what the priest did. He'd walk to the other side and just walked right on by him. And then Jesus said there was a Samaritan walking down the street. Dun, dun, dun. The plot thickens. Because Jesus knows that there was a tension, a long-standing tension between the Samaritans and the Jewish people. The one asking him this question is Jewish. Jesus, knowing that, says the Samaritan walking down the street also sees the man, but boy, he is overtaken by compassion and concern for him, and he gets him the care that he needs, and then Jesus asks this question to the religious leader. Which of the three was a neighbor? The priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan? And you will notice if you look in the text, the man cannot even bring himself to say the name or the words Samaritan. So rather, he says, the one who showed care and concern and compassion. And Jesus said, that's right. He is your neighbor. So he's saying to you, he's saying to me, the people that are different than us, the people maybe that get under our skin a little bit, the people that bother us a little bit, you know, the difficult people in our lives, they too are a neighbor. We're to love them in a 1 Corinthians 13 kind of way. Now raise your hand if you have difficult people in your life. There's people like this and so forth. Keep your hand up if the difficult person is sitting next to you. <laughs> oh, difficult people are everywhere. I love the statement. I love humankind. It's people I can't stand. They're everywhere. Maybe it's the in-law that's always peering over your shoulder telling you how to raise your kids. Maybe it's your spouse who never takes your feelings into consideration. Maybe it's a coworker do anything to get ahead, including taking credit for your work. Maybe it's a passive-aggressive friend. One minute they're so kind to you, the next minute you're invisible. Jesus is saying to you, he's saying to me as Christians, I want you to love even the difficult people. In 1 Corinthians 13, kind of way, I want you to be patient. I want you to be kind. I don't want you to be envious. I don't want you to be arrogant. I don't want you to keep records of wrong. I don't want you to be rude. I don't want you to be all self-centered. I want you easily angered, even with the difficult people. But you know, Jesus goes even further than that in Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. He says this, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus is referencing Leviticus, love your neighbor. They interpreted it as love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Never the intent, Jesus continues. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors the worst of the sinners back then? Are they not even doing that? And Jesus here is saying, look, I want you, Christian, listen, listen. I want you to love different than the world. I want you to love in a supernatural, Christ-like, 1 Corinthians 13 kind of way, even a person that you may call 
your enemy. But you push back. He wronged me. She left me. He hurt me. She took everything I had. He killed her. That's what the parents of Claire Davis said. She was a young teenage student, high school student in Colorado who was killed by Carl Pearson back in late 2013. And Claire's parents said that. But, but he killed her as they were wrestling with their Christian faith and as they were particularly wrestling with the words of Jesus to love your enemy. And as they thought about it, and as they meditated, and as they prayed, and as they realized the depths of God's love and the forgiveness of God in Christ, these are the words that Michael Davis, Claire's father, said at her memorial service, and I quote, My wife Desiree and I forgive Carl Pearson for what he did. We would ask all of you here to forgive him. The fact is that Carl was so blinded by his emotions, he didn't know what he was doing. Unchecked anger and rage can lead to hatred, and unchecked hatred can lead to tragedy, blindness, and a loss of humanity. The last thing we would want is to perpetuate this anger and rage and hatred and connection with our beloved daughter. Wow. He's saying this, nothing good will come out of hating. Does our nation need to hear this word? The tragedies in Dallas and Georgia, Missouri, the shootings, the hatred. You lose the perspective of humanity when you hate. And Jesus says, I don't want you hating. Not even your enemy. In a great book written by Martin Luther King Jr. entitled Strength to Love, said these words, forgiveness is the decisive factor in how much you can love your enemy. And when Jesus hung on the cross, and he looked at his executioners in the eyes and said, forgive them for they know not what they do. How can we doubt God's love for his enemies? It doesn't mean that you become best friends with your enemy. It doesn't mean that you excuse their behavior. It doesn't mean that we're called to be a doormat and not stand up for what is right. No. In fact, I don't know if you caught it, but in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul tells us that love does not rejoice in evil. Love rejoices in truth. And sometimes we're to stand up for what is right. Of course we are. And we're to stand up against evil. But we always, always do it out of a heart of love for the other person. So to the question, what is biblical love? Biblical love is this, a selflessness that benefits another person. 
And Jesus here is calling you and I to love in a very, very difficult way. He's calling us to love not only those that we get along with and that are easier to love, not only those that may bother us and be a bit difficult in our lives, but even those we may call our enemies. He's calling us to love all of them holistically, everyone you come into contact with in a 1 Corinthians 13 kind of way. And that is not easy. And yet, point number two, He's not saying, hey, this is an option. You know, hey, I'm just suggesting it to you, Christian. No, no. He commands us to love this way. Jesus said in John 13, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you. By the way, the as I have loved you is what makes it new. It's his example. And maybe you remember in Matthew 22, Jesus has an, another exchange with a religious leader. And, and this one is a, a religious or a legal scholar, a Pharisee, a, relig, a legal scholar. And, and the scholar asks him the question, which is the greatest commandment? You remember this? And Jesus says this, verse 38, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Love God, love God, love God. Now, if he stopped there, the religious leaders would have heard that and said, oh, no big deal. We know all about loving God. I mean, loving God to them would have been, hey, loving God is keeping the hundreds of commands and loving God is observing the Sabbath and loving God is adhering to all the holy days and loving God is offering burnt sacrifices and loving God is judging the people that do not do the things we think they ought to do. That is loving God. So Jesus is about to disrupt them. Second verse here, verse 39, the second part of it. He says this, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, why does Jesus do that? I mean, the question was pretty clear. What is the greatest commandment? He already answered it in verse 38. Love God with everything you have. So why does Jesus add a second commandment? And the reason for it is he wanted to give some clarity. And he said this, love God. When you love God, it will be revealed in the way you love others. He's connecting the two and he's elevating it as the greatest commandment. Now look at how he ends this conversation. Verse 40, all the law, all right, so what do we hear? Love God, love others, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Wow. That's incredible. Jesus condenses, in essence, the entire Bible into one word. Love. It's pretty incredible when you think about it. I mean, when Jesus came, he didn't come adding more commandments. He didn't come to complicate things with more do's and don'ts of the faith. No, he came to simplify everything. He says everything hangs on these two commandments, love God and love others. And when he did that, he disrupted the lives of those religious Pharisees. 
because he said this, your love for God is revealed by how you love other people, not whether you keep the hundreds of commands, not whether you observe the Sabbath, not whether you observe all the holy days, not whether you offer burnt sacrifices, not whether you, certainly not whether you judge others for not doing what you do. He said, your love for God is revealed in your love for other people and it disrupted the religious leaders. You know, sometimes, I'm guilty of this certain times, but I think sometimes all of us, if we're real honest with ourselves, we can sometimes think, man, this loving thing, you know, loving other people the way God is commanding us to love other people, we can sometimes think, man, it's just so hard to do that. I don't think God really is that concerned if we don't do it. I mean, it's just so hard. I mean, you want me to love, I mean, listen, listen, it's hard enough to love the people that I like in a 1 Corinthians 13 kind of way, let alone the people that are difficult in my life. And so what we can do is think, ah, it's maybe not that important to God. I mean, he'll understand. And sometimes we can be kind of speaking out of a heart of love here, okay? We can sometimes be like the Pharisees and think loving God is going to church and loving God is reading the Bible and loving God is singing worship songs and loving God is memorizing scripture. All those things are wonderful. We're instructed to do every single one of them as a Christian, in fact. Every one of them. But we're never instructed to do them as an ends. They are always a means to being more Christ-like. And the ultimate Christ-like attribute, virtue, is love. That's what Jesus just said. And remember what Jesus said. He goes, by this, everyone is going to know that you're a disciple. By this, everyone's going to know you're one of my followers if you love one another. So we're commanded to love the way Jesus loved. So what does that mean? Just try harder. You know, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 3, has something disturbing a little bit to say about love. And what he says here is you can, you can do the most sacrificial, what appears to be the most sacrificial act of giving and loving for another person and completely miss the mark. Look what he says here. If I give all, not some, all I possess to the poor, but do not have love, means, meaning you can do it without love. He says, I gain nothing. You say, wait a minute, Paul. <laughs> what do you mean I gain nothing? What do you mean I miss the mark? I'm helping people, true. That's good. There is some good there. But he's talking about you and me individually. He says, we, we miss the mark. Because if we're, we're giving without a heart that has been changed, without a heart of love towards the other person, there really is no integrity in it. Because it is not who we are at the core. We're kind of just like forcing, and I gotta do this, I gotta do this in my own strength. Like, and there's no joy at all in that. And that's sometimes how you can have, hey, you can have situations where you see somebody, wow, they look so good over here in church or serving or doing, and yet... 
And yet you don't want to see them in the privacy of their own home. You don't want to see them Monday morning in the office. Or let me say it another way. You could do all those wonderful things and still not represent God well. Why? Because we may be always arguing with our spouse over here or gossiping about someone over there or lying to somebody over here at their expense for our benefit or never taking into consideration the feelings of another person. And so really, at the end of the day, regardless of what it may look like, at the end of the day, it's really all about me, 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 me. And so, what Paul is saying is you can do all those wonderful things. We can go to church and pray, read the Bible, and go to Bible studies, and even give our money away to good causes, but without love motivating us, we could just be going through the motions. And if Christians are just going through the motions there will not be any impact for God. Because there will not be anything supernatural about it. It'll just be like, you know, we can love a little, but not love in this extraordinary way that Jesus is calling us as Christians, in fact, commanding us to do. So what do we do? Point number three, and I close with this. We need to live in the overflow of his love, of God's love. That, that's what we need to do. When Jesus responded to the religious leader, to the question, which is the greatest commandment, remember what he said, the first and greatest commandment is you love God with everything you have. You stay committed to God. Stay yielded to God. Stay trusting in God, and he will empower you to love people the way he commands us to love. See, if loving people reveals our love for God, loving God empowers us and enables us to love people the way he is commanding. There is an order to it. Did you see it? There's an order to all of this. And sometimes we get out of step with the order. And we try to force it and force it and force it. And there's no joy. There's no joy because we bypass step one, which is love God. Max Lucado in a book, boy, I think this book is probably nine years old or ten years old. Living in the Overflow of God's Love, Max Lucado, a prolific Christian writer, wonderful pastor, fantastic book. I highly recommend it. He takes 1 Corinthians 13, he looks at every one of the attributes, and he demonstrates how beautifully Jesus lived each one out. And in this book, he offers up some rhetorical questions. The answers to these questions are yes, but these are the questions he raises in his book, and I, I quote, Could it be we are missing a step? Could it be that the first step of love is not toward them, the other person, but toward him, God? Could it be that the secret to loving is receiving, continually receiving his love? You give love, listen, listen. You give love by first receiving it. So logical, so biblical. 
I can't give you money if I'm broke, right? I can't give you any knowledge if I don't have the knowledge to give you. And I can't give you the love of Christ if I'm not filled continually with the love of Christ. That's the order of things. In fact, Jesus says this, 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first, get the order, loved us. You know what God wants more from you and from me? More than anything? He wants our hearts. That's what he wants. He wants us staying committed to him. He wants us depending continually on him. He wants us trusting him continually. He wants our heart. And we need to come to the end of ourselves in order to do that. The most quoted words of Jesus in the Gospels, you will find them in every single Gospel nine times, is his call to die to self. He's saying, I want you and I need you to come to the end of yourself. Because until we do that, we're not going to stay connected and committed and trusting him. But you see, it won't come to the end of ourself until we come to the realization of two fundamental things. The first one is this. We've got to realize how desperate we are for the love of God in Christ Jesus. We've got to realize how far we fall from him. We fall so short. We're sinners at the core. And we need his grace you know, it's funny, when you look at the Apostle Paul and look at the progression of his writings from when he has the conversion on the road to Damascus to when he is coming to the end of his ministry, you realize that he gets more and more desperate, more and more humbled as he matures. You ever see that in his writing? It's amazing. We got to come to the realization, man, that whoo, we desperately need his love. The second one is this. We've got to continually be blown away by the depths of God's love. I mean, like, totally blown away by it. You know, there's nothing like the love of God in Christ Jesus in this world. There's nothing like it. Hey, listen, when, the world, when you make a mistake, when you blow it, when you mess up, what's the world do? The world turns their backs and walks away. That's how the world loves but how does, how does Jesus, how does he love? No matter what we've done, no matter how we've messed up, he keeps his arms wide open. He'll never turn his back on us. No matter where you've been and what you've done and the things you've said and the places you've been, it doesn't matter. His love is as far as the east is to the west. Never ends, never ends, never ends. He'll never turn his back as long as you have air to breathe. He says, just come. There's, there's, there's nothing like it. And the only way we come to the end of ourselves is when we realize I'm so desperate and oh my goodness, his love is unbelievable. Wow. You know, the Apostle Paul often prayed for the early Christians prayers around those two things. And I want to show you one of the prayers that he prays for the church in Ephesus. 
For the Christians there in Ephesus and Ephesians, this is what he prayed for them. I pray that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's people. Power to do what? Listen, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses Knowledge. Just keep that up for a moment. It surpasses knowledge. His love is never ending. And there's nothing in this world like it. It is incomprehensible, unworldly, don't make sense, crazy love. And it's his love that ought to bring us to him. Look at what he says. I want you to know that. Why? That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. The fullness of his love. And when we're filled with the fullness of God, his love, his kindness, his patience will flow out of us. But it's him doing the work in our hearts. Jesus said this, John 15, 5. He said, I'm the vine. You're the branches, Christian. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much, what? Fruit. First fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22, love. What kind of love? A selflessness that benefits others. It's not you or me doing it and trying harder, forcing it. It's him changing our hearts, working through us. And there's a lot of joy in that. He continues and he says, but if you do not remain in me, you and I will bear zero fruit. He didn't say, like, you know, you know, some. We may be able to love a little, but we're not going to be able to love at all the way he wants us to. He didn't say you're going to have some fruit. He said you're going to have no fruit. Got to get the order right. I was speaking to a friend, a very mature Christian woman. She was... Recently, she was sharing, uh, giving me an update on a friend of hers' child who was in a tragic accident about a year ago. And it left the young man paralyzed, about 30 years old. And since that happened, over about a year now, this friend has been really pouring all sorts of love on this family. And she's been running errands and, you know, going to the, the store, making meals, Hospital visits, multiple hospital visits, lending an ear, even paying some bills out of her own pocket. She's been pouring out all sorts of love and energy and time into this family. Now, she's given me an update as to how he's doing. She told me a little conversation she had with that family recently. And she said, the family asked me this question. Why are you doing this? Why are you demonstrating so much kindness to us? It's unbelievable, frankly. Why are you doing it? 
And being the mature Christian she is, she told me, she said, it's, it's not me. And she referred to back about 10 years ago when she wasn't a believer, when she wasn't depending and submitted to Christ. She said, I would have never done anything like this. I mean, it wouldn't have even crossed my mind. No way, no how, don't think so. But she said, he's changed my heart. And he's doing a work in my heart, and it's his love that's flowing out of me into the lives of those around me. I just make myself available. As she is telling me the story, she's crying. I said, why are you weeping? She goes, because I'm so blessed. See, I feel so blessed helping people. She said, I feel so blessed. I know this sounds corny, she said to me. I feel so blessed because... I feel like I'm in the center of his will. I feel like I'm being his hands and his feet. When she said that, my mind went immediately to the upper room conversation that Jesus had with his disciples right after he washed their feet. He said, I want you to love others the way I'm demonstrating it to you here. Be selfless out of a heart of love. Right after he said that, he said, and if you do it, you will be blessed. That's what he said. I said, isn't that like our God? He commands us to do the impossible. He empowers us in a way that makes the impossible possible. And when we depend and yield on him, he blesses us. Not only in the eternal life that awaits us, but he blesses us in the here and now. And that, my friends, is a real good God. Let's pray. Father God, your word is beautiful. There's nothing like your word, Father God, because it is truth, and truth penetrates our hearts. And Father, I just pray for everyone that is here listening to my voice. I pray, Father, that every one of our hearts would be softened by the depths of your love for us. Father, I pray that every one wherever they are in their journey to you, Father, I pray that they would be overcome by the depths of your love, that there is nothing that they could do to prevent you from loving them. And my prayer, Father, is that they would respond to that love, that it would draw them closer, draw me closer to you so that we, Father God, could represent you well. And so that we can lead a lost, a hurting, a broken world to the grace that is in Christ our Lord. Father, you are an incredible God. You're a good God. And we thank you for all that you do and all that you will continue to do through a body of believers that wholeheartedly puts our trust in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.